Hello and welcome to Japan Memo, a new podcast series from the IISS Japan Chair Program. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Japanese Security and Defense Policy at the IISS. In this podcast, we hope to unpack why Japan matters to the Asia-Pacific region and beyond today. Each month, we will bring you an episode to understand how Japan is trying to navigate today's dynamic geopolitical and geoeconomic landscape as a promoter of the rules-based international order. We will explore a wide range of topics such as Japan's diplomatic relations, economic statecraft, and security and technology policies. Today, it is our huge pleasure to have with us Bill Emmett. Chairman of the IISS Trustees, of course, and well known for his long association with Japan. For 13 years, from 1993 to 2006, Bill was editor-in-chief of The Economist newspaper. During his time at The Economist, Bill spent three years in Tokyo from 1983 to 1986, just before the start of Japan's economic bubble, which seemed to have kindled a lifelong interest in all things Japanese. Listeners may know Bill's second book, The Sun Also Sets the Limits to Japan's Economic Power, written in 1989, on why Japan would not retain economic preeminence, highly prescient given Japan's economic stagnation in the 1990s. This was also one of the first books I ever read on Japan, and it is still worth seeking out. Since then, Bill has written 10 other books, including seven more on Japan, with six published only in Japanese. His newest tome is also on Japan, called Japan's Far More Female Future. And this book takes a look at Japan's gender inequality and its impact on Japan's society and its economy. Bill has also made some films, including the excellent Girlfriend in a Coma on the state of Italy. He's been an advisor to some well-known global companies, holds roles with prestigious academic institutions, including in Japan and the UK, and most recently has co-founded the Global Commission for Post-Pandemic Policy, about which more later. As well as all this, where do you find the time, Bill? Uh, Bill also works to promote Japan-UK relations, chairing the UK's Japan Society. In 2016, the Japanese government awarded him the Order of the Rising Sun Gold Rays with Neck Ribbon for services to bilateral relations. Bill, a very warm welcome to this inaugural edition of Japan Memo. I'm delighted to be with you. And welcome, Bill. So now we know that you have been observing Japan for many decades. Could you share with us when and how did you become interested in Japan? I really became interested in Japan by accident when I was a young reporter at The Economist, eager to travel abroad and to to live abroad again. I'd, I'd worked in Brussels before. A job came up in Japan. I thought there was no chance that I would be sent to it but I volunteered just in order to make it known that I was wanting another foreign correspondent job, and to my shock and delight, they sent me. So I found myself in Japan, and essentially it was love at first sight. You've also written many best-selling books analyzing Japan's future. Um, What are the key political, economic, and societal developments in the past decades that you think are most important to understanding Japan's global positions today? Well, if I think back to when I first arrived in Japan in the 80s um, and have been following it, particularly since the bursting of the bubble economy in 1990, 1991, the big changes are, first of all, socioeconomic, aging society. It used to be a, a relatively young society in the 70s and 80s compared with European and North American societies. Now it's an aging society. That's the most profound change. But secondly, it was a society in which Human capital was developed very well, sustained well in 
uh, semi-lifetime employment arrangements for men, essentially, not women, but for men. Now, I think the big economic change is, is that it's now a more divided society with between people who do have full contract, regular employment, 60% of workers, and the 40% who are in non-regular, more insecure jobs. And as a result, human capital in Japan has actually been degraded relative to the input of education. But thirdly, the big positive change that's happened since the 1980s is that female human capital has been enormously improved because in the 1980s, very few women were able to go to full four-year university courses. In the 1990s, it absolutely took off, and the gap, huge gender gap in university education between men and women was narrowed, uh, and not quite eliminated, but narrowed, such that that's a, a terrific social change, but also, I think, for the future, an economic change, because you've got that new human capital uh, in professionally educated women arriving through the pipeline. Then the final observation I'd make is that in the 1980s, early 1990s, Japan had a pretty benign security environment. There was China, but it was a, an irritant, not a threat. There was North Korea, but also an irritant, not a threat. The only real threat was Russia, and that was dealt with through the security treaty with the United States and just involved the Northern Territories and a little bit of residual worry. Now, Japan is in a terrible uh, neighborhood in terms of security with China, with North Korea, with some threats from Russia. I think the transformation in Japan's security position and, st and strategic position is the, probably the most dramatic change uh, in, those, in those four decades. Thank you very much. I think those are very interesting points. And uh, just on your point about Japan's female students in higher education, we were looking at the stats of you know, the female in studying abroad. I myself went to studying abroad for both undergrad and also graduate studies. The data shows that actually more female decides to study abroad than the male students. Um, this, the data shows um, in 2018 and 19 that 60% of those who studied abroad were female. Absolutely. Well, I think that if you have a, a, a society and a corporate system which is quite prejudiced against you, uh, so many barriers, glass, bamboo, steel, or whatever you want to call the ceilings, then the desire to get other weaponry and other experience to try to um, make, to fulfill yourself in that difficult uh, environment is absolutely natural. So it's true that the negative trend in, in student exchange for Japan has been a decline overall in the number of students traveling, uh, studying abroad as a percentage of those graduating, but the big rise has been in female students. Have there been other maybe positive changes in Japan that you were not expecting and you perceive as a pleasant surprises? Well, I think that you know, the thing about studying Japan is that what you have to expect is gradual change and never sudden transformational change. The mistake that people like me, if you like, journalists make is that they're expecting big announcements, big earthquakes to happen, as it were, I mean, metaphorical earthquakes rather than literal ones. And what you have to look at is gradual step-by-step -step changes, uh, because that's the way Japan evolves. Uh, and I do think that uh, greater gender equality, particularly in education, is one of the dramatic changes. I think that also a certain new innovative uh, culture among younger Japanese is another hidden 
you like development that uh, has been surprising since, again, Westerners uh, looking at Japan tend to have a view that Japan's rigid, it's not got a Silicon Valley, it doesn't understand software, its technology companies were all from the 1980s and they're all busted now, forgetting the fact that A, Japan is home to Masayoshi Son and SoftBank and the biggest investment uh, technology venture fund in the world, but also B, that actually there's an array of technology startups that are below the radar, but they nevertheless represent that, uh, that um, like social change that I think has taken place. Bill, your, your Japan career spans um, some sort of 40 years um, from, uh, as you were saying just now, from when Japan was a lot, was a lot younger uh, to now when it's got uh, some of the most uh, acute demographic challenges in, in the rich world, so aging populations, low birth rates, rural depopulation. Um, I'm sure you saw the, the, the uh, latest census that showed Japan's population was actually falling between comparing 2020 to 2015. Um, given the, your, your range of experience in Japan, how, how confident are you that Japanese companies and organizations will be able to deal effectively with, with these uh, demographic challenges? I think that um, they're pretty used to dealing with the demogra- demographic question. In, da- in fact, I think that um, the sort of exploration of, of, of markets related to uh, an aging society and technology related to an aging society has been going on for such a long time in Japan that, in fact, I, I think that's quite um, well rehearsed and well tried. Indeed, in some of your own work in the Economist Intelligence Unit before you came to IISS, Robert, I remember you were particularly prescient in spotting this, uh, this uh, initiative, if you like, and an advantage of some Japanese companies and Japanese society. I think also in managing care homes to some degree, I think uh, Japan has been quite well advanced, as has been shown by the, in some ways, astonishing low um, death rate, mortality rate among the vulnerable, aged parts of the population. So that part of it I'm sort of confident about. Where corporate Japan is less good at adapting is one in adapting its, its seniority structure to a, a longer working life and to um, a, 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 a change from the old system where, where you disappeared in your late 50s or early 60s and you disappeared from the cost structure. And I think that corporate Japan hasn't really still got to grips with the impact of, a, of a, what Linda Grattan of London Business School calls the 100-year life, the, the really long period. Um, secondly, I think that um, corporate Japan has not got in personnel terms really um, in touch with or hasn't come accepted the internationalization of a lot of its businesses, uh, such that many companies and corporate groups know that to get growth, to, to expand their business, to re- use their technology, they need to be international. They need to invest abroad. Indeed, a big trend has been that, but they haven't internationalized their staff. And therefore, they, are, they are, have a gap, I think, in their in the sort of sensitivity with which they can they um, understand those international markets that they realize are part of their future. That one hundred year life, of course, a sign of success as much as anything else. Uh, a sign of health and absolutely and good living and, and, and good good sushi and uh, all, all the other stuff that goes with Japan. I was just wondering if if there's anything you think that um, foreign companies or foreign governments can learn from how Japan's handled its demographic challenge. The big thing that European governments need to learn from Japan, although I think they already know they should do this, 
is the high percentage of Japanese in their 60s, 70s, and, and even 80s who are still in work. I think in Japan, the number of the percentage of over 65s who are in work is somewhere around 30% now. It was high 20s, at least maybe 30%. In Italy, it's 4%. And that's all to do with pension uh, incentives. Um, in Germany, it's also pretty low, uh, again, because of pension incentives. It's a bit better in Britain, it's a bit better in some other European, but that's the model that we need to get to, where people do work maybe in different ways through a longer part of their lives, because actually it's also better for their health. Uh, and maybe that's the biggest finding from the Japanese experience, which is that health comes from continued acti activity. My father-in-law, who is Japanese, he's 88 and still working, going strong. So uh, oh, well, that's a <laughs> role model for, for all of us, although I think I might want to retire by the time I'm 80. Let's <laughs> put that out there. You'll just write another book after <laughs> that. <laughs> This, this sort of de this acute de demography, um, these demographic challenges, what impact do you think uh, these will have on Japan's ability to grow economically over the longer term? The impact of, of, of an aging society is that it, it definitely, you know, labor is an important input to uh, economic growth, that if you have less labor, by definition, you are going to have less growth. But I think that there is a, a high-value, high-wage formula that Japan could adopt that would regenerate growth um, if they went for it. What, unfortunately, where Japan got, has got itself trapped in, I think, since the 1990s, has been actually a fairly cheap labor model, which is a cheap labor model based on rigid cost structures in, in corporations, thanks to the seniority system, that then is compensated for by very cheap non-regular workers who are short on short-term contracts, can be turnover quickly, very little invested in their training, um, and, but then also contribute to depressed wage growth over, over a long period. So currently, the, the place Japan has got itself into is a sort of, it's not quite a vicious cycle, it's an, an anemic cycle, whereby every effort to, to boost growth actually comes up against the, the problem that household consumption doesn't revive because wages are low, because a lot of the workforce is on insecure contracts and on, on, on this, this, this low human capital system. And therefore, business doesn't invest either on a sustained basis. So you don't get the virtuous cycle of, of economic growth. Give me a magic wand, and I would switch Japan to become the Switzerland of Asia. We go for a high-value, high-wage system that then produced a, a, a positive cycle of, uh, of in high employment, high wages, high spending, investment, new technology to replace the, the, the fact that the, num the number of people is declining. But that would, I think, then produce a more prosperous overall population. I mean, let's not exaggerate it. Anyone who goes to Japan and, uh, and has read books saying that Japan is a, has, has had lost decades and is a place of stagnation says, if this is a lost decade, I want one of them. You know, this is, this is not an unprosperous country, but it should be so much more prosperous than it is, and also more able to afford the, the assets that it needs, particularly in defense and security. And so I, I think that um, Abenomics was right to aspire to raise the potential growth rate. It's just that they didn't do the right things to, to do so. Um, Japan could have a higher potential growth rate, and then it would have the public finances to be able to build a proper defense 
Well, you've sort of preempted my next question on, on Abenomics. If we're talking about economic growth, I have to ask you about Abenomics. It's certainly a fantastic branding exercise in terms of getting Japan noticed uh, internationally. But um, in the round, do you think it was successful? I think that Corodonomics, which was the huge monetary expansion that's happened uh, under Prime Minister Abe when he appointed uh, Mr. Kuroda as governor of the Bank of Japan, has worked to some extent. It certainly boosted asset prices. Um, it has certainly created some, therefore, paper wealth, uh, and it has helped s slow the deflation and, and, uh, that, that, that was there. But what hasn't happened has been the positive cycle of, of household consumption and investment uh, that, I, that I think should have been the aspiration. Indeed, I think if Mr. Kuroda was sitting at the table here, I would ask him, I'd say, about five years ago, or maybe it was longer, I said to you, when will wage growth start? And he said, just watch out for it. It's coming any month now. And I think he'd say the same now. Um, so that, that's been the big failure. I think it's been partly because of the lack of so-called structural reform, in other words, competition-boosting uh, reform to, to uh, boost investment. But I think it's also been to do with labor, labor markets and this, this clinging to um, an insecure labor system to keep a pool of cheap labor available, which has often been women entering the workforce, but also your 88-year-old father uh, and other retired people, rather than going for a high-value system. So I think it, Abenomics was fine as far as it went, but it needed to go a lot further. Well, Abe is now gone, um, as we all know, and I'm just wondering, um, with the current Prime Minister, uh, Suga Yoshihide, is there anything that he's doing in terms of policy that's, that's caught your interest? I think there are two big things that uh, Prime Minister Suga has done that have caught my interest. The main one has been his pledge on climate change uh, and his pledge to increase the, the, the target for Japan's um, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from 23% by 2030 to 46%, which is dramatic. And the point about the reason it catches the attention is partly because there's no plan for how to implement it but also it's, it sets the framework for business uh, and, of course, for government in, in actually fulfilling this, which I think then will shape a lot of other policies ahead. And it's an unusual move by a Japanese prime minister to, be, to, to set such a bold framework in a way and then say, now you lot work it out. Well, he didn't quite say that, but it, that's the implication. You go and work out what has to be done to, to make this happen, and I've committed this to, to my my new counterpart, Joe Biden, um, and uh, your choice is to either bet that America is going to re-elect Donald Trump and it'll no longer matter in four years' time, or that this is here for the long term, and I think it's here for the long term. Second is the initiative for digitalizing government and for boosting that. I think that's quite a difficult task, but in terms of raising if you like, the technological game and in, in producing an enormous amount of effici new efficiency in the whole system, that move away from a like Hanko stamp and towards uh, e-government um, is a very important one, and being led from the government, hopefully driven by, um, by the new digital agency, it could have long-term effects. Everything else, of course, with a prime minister who's quite likely to be in the pre-Abe mold of being a one, two, three-year person, isn't likely to be here uh, to, to really stick. But those two things are, are ones that I think could be of long-term significance. You mentioned some 
challenges, but also some, some interesting developments on Japan's economic reforms. How do you think these developments are kind of impacting Japan's ability or on Japan's kind of position in the global stage? Especially you mentioned about the climate change um, pushed by the Suga administration, but also the digitalization. Um, but you also mentioned about the challenges in the um, high values and, and, and high uh, wage, wage kind of labor market. But how does that fit in Japan's kind of global standing in the future? In the last decade, Japan has um, made a lot of progress in becoming more of a leader in terms of multilateral uh, institutions, particularly obviously exemplified by the Trans-Pacific Partnership, now CPTPP, um, but also the UK, uh, the, sorry, the EU-Japan Economic Partnership agree Agreement. Uh, initiatives like that have might raise Japan's reputation as a, as a, as some someone that's on the front foot in in international affairs, whereas previously, it's an exaggeration but a simplification, it was on the back foot. It was reactive always, uh, and so I think the question, looking forward, is, can Japan remain on the front foot, uh, and and act as something of initiator and a trusted partner, uh, and. I think that Japan can, but it needs to keep on finding new areas on which to act with initiative. Uh, on climate change, it's not entirely on the front foot, but it has at least shown some boldness to try to, to try to catch up. Um, on, like during the pandemic, on vaccination, uh, and in particular vaccine diplomacy, I think Japan's been on the back foot. Uh, and I would like to have seen Japan take a greater initiative in, in stimulating extra funding for global COVAX program. It did belatedly with a, with a summit uh, about a month ago, uh, and it's put up some more money of its own, and it's given a few doses to Taiwan and to others, but it's going to be overshadowed by China in this. China's producing half the world's vaccines right now. Japan is not anywhere in the vaccine production game at all. So I think that over the next year, actually, Ch Japan will be rather overshadowed in this sense. But against that slightly pessimistic view, Japan is much more trusted than China. So Japan really has to build on that trust and, and exploit that trust to, to exert its influence in the region, um, because it's much more trusted than, than China, but it isn't always there on the front foot with either the money or the technology or the initiatives. And that's where it needs, needs to be more sustainably or more regularly, in my view. Trust has become a keyword for a wide variety of issues on foreign policy. You mentioned about COVID-19. Of course, you're currently a co-director at the Global Commission for Post-Pandemic Policy. Looking at the bigger picture on what impact um, will the COVID-19 pandemic have on Japan's, maybe other points that you haven't mentioned around Japan's kind of regional and global standing in the long term? Part of the answer to that question probably is something that we should discuss at the end of August when the Olympics and Paralympic Games have finished, um, to say, how did it go? Was this a success? Did you all you know, do it well? Um, right, I know it's a rather short-term issue, but I do think now a key decision for Japan has been to continue with the Olympics, and I think it's been the right decision from this point of view of international reputation, trust, status within the, uh, the region and the world. Uh, but now, of course, Japan needs to pull off a successful and an attractive Olympics. 
but I think that that will be important, whereas the opposite, cancellation, would have been, I think, terrible for Japan's reputation uh, globally. Secondly, Japan hasn't come out of the pandemic looking, all, looking as good as I would like it to have done in technology. I think that um, while on the positive side, Japan has been more adaptable towards digital working, digital technology than perhaps pessimists might have predicted, and that actually a rather resilient corporate, more resilient and less rigid corporate structure than you might have predicted. Nevertheless, it's still a, a, a late adopter rather than an early adopter. But most of all, as I mentioned earlier, I think the weakness of the pharmaceutical sector and of the whole vaccine um, manufacturing sector has been shown, and indeed the somewhat weakness of Japan's regulatory and approval process, or at least the reluctance and, and slowness of it, has made Japan look almost irrelevant in, in the vaccination issue. You know, now we see Japan organizing a very rapid vaccination rollout. The graph's going up very steeply. It's rather impressive, but from at a very late stage, and Southeast Asia is being swamped with Chinese vaccines. Indonesia, Japan's, in a way, historically greatest friend within ASEAN, and most grateful for all sorts of Japanese investment, now is basically using Chinese vaccines, and so that it's losing out a bit in that international reputation. So, but let's look at the Olympics, and then we'll see some, at least, psychological boost coming from that. Yes, it's actually quite interesting to see Japan is also increasingly aware of its lack of capacity, for instance, to develop its national vaccines. But because it seems like um, the Japanese government has recently been increasingly focusing on economic security and the supply chain resiliency and its domestic um, capabilities to um, um, develop its vaccine, um, Japan has came up with its national vaccine policy, which was released in, in June um, this year. I think it was put together in maybe very, very uh, short amount of time. So it does show that Japan is trying to do more, um, more play a larger role in, in future pandemics. I think that that's right, and it and it can take time to get get a decision made and to get it implemented. But then once it's implemented, it tends to be very, um, very resolute. Uh, so I, I I think that you're right. That is a positive. While we're on the Olympics, I have to ask you, Bill, is there one sport amongst all the sports that will be on, on the television that you will be watching most closely? <laughs> I'm not a big sports person, actually, for the Olympics, I have to admit. If only cricket was a proper, a proper Olympic sport, I'd, I'd be there. But I'm afraid I'm not. I'm not, I'm not the right fan. Me neither. Not, not, a, in, not, not a really intense sport fan, but I, I do like the diving. I just think to get on that board and then to the distance down, I mean, the bravery is, is just astonishing. I don't think I could do it, but... Um. <laughs> a couple of easier questions for you. Um, and now our, our two Japan memo questions to, uh, to wrap up. Um, the first one is, do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan better, and you are allowed to recommend your own books. I couldn't possibly recommend my own books. You've already done so. But um, I would say that way two books, I think, uh, come to my mind from different, very different points of view. One is actually a sports book, um, which is a book by an American who's lived in Japan for 50 or 60 years now called Robert Whiting. And he wrote a book about a sport I don't understand at all, baseball. Um, called You Gotta Have War. Um, and in some ways, for a certainly a non-Japanese audience to understand the, f the, the sociology of Japan, um, that 
emphasis on, on harmony in the group and the way in which organizations work and gel as exemplified on the sports field actually does tell you a lot that you need to know anyway about Japan. But the other book that I would recommend is a, at the other end of the kind of scholarly spectrum in a way, which is about Japan's historic ge geographical situation, was Ezra Vogel's Great History of China and Japan, uh, China and Japan Facing History, published a couple of years ago. Um, and in terms of understanding the relationship between these two superpowers, as they've been at different times over the thousands of years, cultural intertwining, but actually the, the, the rivalry, the political and geographical rivalry, I think it's, it's absolutely a, a something you, it's a long book, but nevertheless that should, should be understood and read to understand Japan's situation. And yeah, I was going to ask, does it give any pointers to Japan-China relations going forward? I'd say that Ezra Vogel's pointer would be that you need to understand each other better. Um, uh, and as he did, you know, a fantastic scholar of both countries. Um, but unfortunately, he's, he was somebody from, uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts, studying rather than each other. But uh, I think the pointer is that they do need to understand each other better than they are, but that one has to be a bit pessimistic about the relationship, um, I would say, going forward, because I think from a Chinese point of view, um, they're going to continue to use the, the, the long-term rivalry with Japan as a way to weaken Japan and to try to divide it from other countries. And our final question, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? Well, I think that the big thing that I find, and I think always in my time, but certainly in recent years that people got wrong about Japan, is that the image of Japan is of something that, a place that's quite centrally directed, that is um, top-down, the old Japan Inc. notion. Whereas Japan is, has a dispersed system of power. Um, and indeed, a great book about Japan, which I sort of disagreed with part of it, but Carol Van Wolferen's book, The Enigma of Japanese Power, in 1989, 1990, put his finger on this. He just drew the wrong conclusion, but it was that there isn't a center of, Jap of power in Japan. It is, it is a network system. Uh, and I think people typically get wrong the assumption that it must be centrally directed. And we've seen during the pandemic, of course, this played out, that the lack of central direction, the lack of even the ability to have emergency powers, the lack of that kind of uh, uh, command and control system. Uh, and so I hope people will have watched that and thought, actually, maybe Japan's a bit different than I thought, um, because the idea that there's a mission uh, a mission center, you know, a, a control center somewhere in Kasumi Gaseki that determines everything is one of the worst misunderstandings about Japan. Well, great point to, to end on. Thank you so much, Bill, for this fantastic conversation. Um, thanks also to our listeners for joining us on this first episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. And for more insightful and innovative analysis, please visit the IISS website on IISS.org. We're also looking forward to connecting with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing latest news and analysis on everything from Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find all of us on Twitter at Bill Emmett, at Robert Allen Ward, and at Yuka Kushin. Thank you again, and see you next time.